In the 1987 film, Wall Street, Gordon Gekko punctuates a speech that he's been giving to stockholders, famously or infamously, with these words, greed is good, greed is right, greed works, greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. We come to 2 Kings in chapter 5 again this morning, and really part two of our time together, where we will not consider Naaman, who is cleansed from his sin and made new, but the false servant of Elisha, who decides for himself that greed is indeed good, and tries to get something from the Syrian who had been brought into the family of God. We have on display for us Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's a great reversal that takes place in our passage today. As Gehazi is revealed to be greedy, and though he is called time and again a servant of Elisha, a servant of God, what comes out is that he is a servant of himself and of what he can get. Whereas Naaman, the one who has been cleansed, he's revealed to be a true servant of Yahweh and of Elisha. I think the main idea of the text this morning, the main thing I want you to get, is that you should believe the gospel and be changed. There's a difference between giving lip service to Christ as Lord and actually having your life and your heart changed by Jesus. Jesus changes those who come to him. And if it's possible to deceive ourselves, pretend that we believe, and yet remain unchanged. Main idea, believe and be changed. Your outline is there before you. We're going to look at Naaman, a changed man, and Gehazi, a scamming man. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Are you all right over there, Jerry? I was looking at you. You're dabbing at the I'm making sure you're okay. Okay. Don't do anything crazy. You're going to throw me off here. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Pray that you would meet us here, that you would bind us together in Christ, that we would have a sense of the unity we enjoy by your spirit. As we listen to you, call out to you for grace and mercy enough for today. Thank you for bringing us together and putting us together as your body here at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. What a special privilege it is to hear your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and faith to believe. Change us by your Holy Spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're going to double back and start at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were, the pro were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, 
Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. We're introduced at the beginning of this chapter to an outsider, a Syrian, who is not one of those members of the covenant. He's living outside the promised land under the rule of one of Israel's enemies. And yet we discover that the Lord, the God of Israel, is giving Naaman victories. We learn that the Lord God is not just the Lord God of Israel. He is the Lord of all nations and of all peoples and of all history. He is ruling and reigning sovereignly over everything in the universe. And that includes Naaman, who we know is a mighty man of valor. And he owes that, the author tells us, to the Lord. And in one of his military campaigns, he performs a raid against Israel even. And as a consequence of that raid, he captures a little girl who's brought into his house, taken away from her mother and her father in the land that she grew up in, to serve his wife. And then there's a wrinkle in the story. The little girl is not bitter towards Naaman. She's not hateful towards her captors. Rather, she is filled with Love. The little girl has been taught to love the Lord her God with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so, she tells her mistress, would not Naaman be made well if he would merely go to the prophet Elisha, who is in Israel? And so, Naaman goes. He gets the letters that he thinks he needs from all the right people. He goes to the king of Israel, who he expects to at least know the great prophet in Israel. And the king reveals he doesn't know God. He doesn't know the prophet. Yes, he, he can quote scripture, but he has no faith. And he tears his clothes, says, who am I? I can't make this guy well. I can't kill and make alive. That's God's jurisdiction. He's got the theology right, but no belief. And so he sends Naaman, eventually Elisha comes and says, send Naaman to me. And Naaman goes to Elisha. He comes with all the pomp and pageantry commensurate with his station. He expects Elisha to come out and come before him. 
He's a great man. And yet, Elisha does not come out. He sends a messenger to him. We pontificated last week how this would be a little bit like you going to the doctor's office and uh, the physician saying that he can't see you, sending someone else out and then saying, I'm, I'm so sorry, I, I know that you've traveled all this way, but uh, Elisha, the, the prophet, he's, he's busy right now. He's tied up. Uh, he's, he's enjoying a sandwich. Um, but, but I'm sorry again, he has, he has given me a prescription for what ails you. You need to go and take a bath. Indeed, this is a strange prescription. And Naaman is offended by it. It's very ordinary. He says almost, do you think that I haven't tried bathing before? And the waters in Damascus are far clearer and cleaner than the Jordan. I could be made clean by bathing in them. This is an offensive word. It's a foolish word. What kind of foolish counsel is this? And that's sort of the point. The Lord always humbles those that he saves. We cannot come to God on our own accord thinking that we deserve relationship with him. We can't come with anything in our hands saying, see, I've earned right relationship with you. See, I've earned my healing. See, I've paid for my resurrection. No, eternal life is the gift of God that is given to all who have faith in Christ. Faith doesn't earn that relationship. It's merely the instrument that receives the grace of God, and it itself is a gift from God. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot manipulate God into having a right relationship with us. And this seems foolish to Naaman. He's like, I brought all the gifts. I'm supposed to give him the money, the gifts, and he is supposed to give me his healing. And I expect it to be, well, entertaining. I expect him to, to come out and make a pronouncement and wave his hand, wave his magic wand over my leprosy, and to be made well. And I just can't think how often we think just like Naaman. If I do the right things, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, we're tempted to think this way, well, then I can earn what God owes me. I don't want, I don't want just a plain, ordinary word that I have to receive and believe. I want something exciting and entertaining. It's the, the ordinary word that Jesus died for my sins, cleanses me from them with his blood, and that he rose from the dead and his is returning, that just seems foolish. It doesn't, it's offensive to me. It means I can't make myself right with God. That's foolishness. Why would I believe that? And that's right. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God is the one who gives us ears to hear. Natural man cannot believe the word of God apart from a miracle of God. It sounds as folly to him. And the idea to go and bathe in the Jordan sounds as folly to Naaman. It sounds ridiculous, such that he's willing to go away in a rage until his friends, his servants, stop him. And they say, did he really say wash and be clean? They've, the prophet has spoken a good word to you. So Naaman changes course. He listens to the word. He washes, and he is made clean. We have this note that we pointed out last week that his flesh was restored. It's there in verse 14. Like the flesh of a little child. We're to recall the little girl, clean and full of faith. Naaman has become like her, cleansed clean, full of faith, a believer in God's word. Naaman is a changed man. And that becomes evident in verses 15 through 19. He's a changed man. He worships Yahweh alone. Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, 
I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha said to him, Go in peace. Naaman is a changed man. He has immediately become a monotheist, which is no small deal when you live in a world filled with other gods and deities. All at once, Naaman has been made clean of his leprosy, and he has been converted to faith in Yahweh, the one true God. He's turned away from dead idols to the God who lives. He has been made new to the extent that as he considers his own work back in Syria, he realizes that he's going to have to go into the temple of a false god with his master and help his master kneel before that false god, and it pricks his conscience. He wants Elisha to know, when I bow down next to my master, I'm not worshiping that false god. My heart belongs only to the Lord, the God of Israel. I'm not going to sacrifice to any other God. He gets that first commandment. You shall have no other gods beside me. He understands the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's committed to doing it, and he's committed to doing it even though he's going to live in a land that's filled with darkness and idolatry. He is so concerned with only worshiping Yahweh that he asks for two donkey loads of dirt. He wants this dirt so he can take it back home with him and build an altar and there make sacrifices to the Lord. Seems a little strange to us on the face of it, but maybe it shouldn't. Unfortunately for me, uh, I grew up a Cleveland Browns football fan. This, this is an example of the sins of the father being visited upon the son. I have one, rem- one memory back in the mid-90s. Those of you who follow football will know that uh, the Browns were sold to Baltimore and became the Ravens, a great betrayal. And so there were a few years there where the Browns didn't have, the Cleveland didn't have a football team. And in 1996, they decided they were going to tear down the old stadium after they had a fan day the day before. And my, my father and my uncle and I went to the fan day. I don't remember much of what happened there except for this small experience at the conclusion of the whole episode. They invited all of us to come out onto the field and to take pieces of it with us. And so my father pulled out his, what I think was a Ziploc baggie, I don't know, and you dug up you know, a little bit of that dirt and you put it in the bag and you, you took it home. Well, why'd you, it's weird. I don't know where the bag is or why you had the dirt. But it's like a piece of memorabilia, right? A, a connection to the home stadium of the Cleveland Browns. Other people do this too. I have friends who, when they tore down Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, they auctioned off sections of the seats, right? You could get rows of five and six chairs. They got them in their basement. Right? They're, they're connected to the home team. And that's sort of what... Naaman is doing here. He he wants to be connected to the God of Israel, to the land of Israel. Because in his pagan mind, remember, the worldview in the ancient times was that every geographic area was sort of the home turf of a particular God. And so the belief was gods could only function inside of their own home turf, their own jurisdiction. And so he's taking the dirt from Israel and he wants to take it to Syria back home so that he can worship Yahweh in his own hometown. Now, he could worship Yahweh there anyway without the dirt, but he's forming this connection. He wants to make sure that his heart is wholly true to the Lord his God, even 
in the workplace. And this is an encouraging passage, I think, to those of you who work in places that are full of idolatry and darkness. Places where good is often called evil, and evil is often called good. Naaman is an encouragement to you, just like Obadiah. Remember Obadiah worked for wicked Ahab? And even though Ahab's administration hated the Lord God, Obadiah was faithful within it, hid prophets. Likewise, Naaman is planning on serving his unbelieving boss while remaining faithful to Yahweh. He's even going to have to go into a pagan temple and appear to be paying homage. And he wants Elisha to pardon me for this matter. It's just part of my job. But know that my heart is true to the Lord. This is encouraging for you who work in places where sometimes your conscience will be pricked. You're going to have to employ wisdom and creativity. Dare I say, you, you might have to be clever in the ways that you do your job well and still do not violate the commandments of God. It can be done. Now, you should never violate your conscience. And perhaps you are asked to do something that requires you to quit your job or to refuse a particular task. But there's a lot of space between lose your job or uh, go against the company and get yourself in trouble and, you know, creativity. <laughs> so I think what we learn here is that we can navigate these situations. We can work for the glory of God even in idolatrous places without violating the commands of God. And so if you work in one of those places, I want to encourage you. You can be like Naaman. You can work for unbelieving bosses in unbelieving places and still remain faithful to the Lord your God good. And also, I think there's an encouragement here too, and a little bit of a rebuke for someone like me. You see there in verse 19, he says all of this to Elisha, and Elisha said to him, go in peace. Now, I got to say, initially reading this, I want to be like, Elisha, what do you mean go in peace? You just need to tell him, you have to quit that job and join the sons of the prophets. Can't, can't be rolling up into pagan temples and bowing down. That, the optics of this are really bad. But that's not what Elisha says. Elisha says, go in peace. And it is a reminder to us that sometimes we will find ourselves or others in difficult situations that require wisdom to address and that we should always err on the side of being charitable to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Much more likely to say, go in peace rather than to condemn them for going at all. We want to make sure that we are not adding to the Scriptures and tying up heavy burdens that are then placed upon the back of our fellow Christians. Elisha encourages Naaman to go in faith, go in peace, and to continue growing in his love for the Lord his God. Naaman is a changed man. Naaman is a monotheist now, and Naaman now recognizes that God doesn't serve him, but that he serves Yahweh. You'll notice there's a change in his posture. In the first half of the chapter, he's too prideful to go and dip himself in the Jordan. He expects Elisha to come before him. But now, he goes before Elisha, and he calls himself your servant five times in those four verses. Especially in verse 17, right? If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. He's making it clear that he has been humbled, that he doesn't expect God to serve his needs and his interests, but that he exists to serve God. Does that make sense? Almost here, 
John the Baptist's famous declaration in Naaman's words here. You know, in John 3.30, John the Baptist says, He, meaning Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. He must increase and I must decrease. This is what Naaman is saying. I have been humbled. My life now is about the Lord. He must be magnified in me. That's my concern, that he is rightly worshipped and honored. Not necessarily my own healing. Friends, I wonder, have you been humble before the Lord as a servant? Do you think of your relationship with God as existing just for your benefit? I think sometimes we invert that famous question, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? But we change it and we go, what is the chief end of God? And we say, well, to glorify man and to make sure his dreams are accomplished. The truth of the gospel, the truth of the reason we exist is the opposite. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy him. Friends, we must be as those who say with Naaman and with John the Baptist, Christ must become greater. I must become less. My hope is that we would be a people who would be about magnifying the name of the Lord Jesus rather than building our own brand. That we would want to worship God above everything else. Naaman is a changed man. He's a monotheist. He's a humble servant of the Lord. And he is a generous man. He came equipped to pay for a healing. And now he's received that healing. And yet he still wants to give to the prophet. See that in verse 15. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before Elisha. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it. But Elisha refused. Naaman wants to give. He wants to honor the Lord by giving to the Lord's prophet. But Elisha refuses to accept any payment because it would communicate exactly the wrong thing about God. Now, you'll see later in verse 26, there is a time for God's servants to receive honorarium and gifts and payment, all of those things. But this time, when Naaman has just been made well, is not the right time. Elisha wants to make it clear to Naaman that the God of Israel is not like the pagan deities that Naaman is used to. The God of Israel needs no man needs no gifts. He is not a taker, but a giver. Elisha wants to make clear to Naaman that God gives graciously, that his healing is a gift that he cannot pay for. It is God's kindness to him. And so we see that Naaman is generous But Elisha is clear. God gives. And so Naaman is a changed man, cleansed outwardly and converted inwardly. He's a monotheist. He's a humble follower of the Lord his God. And he desires to generously support the Lord's work. And so we want to ask ourselves, have I been changed Has my relationship with Jesus Christ changed the way I live? Am I different because I am a Christian than I would be if I did not claim Christ? Because the truth is, if we are unchanged, then we have not known Jesus. Naaman is changed. Non-Christian, you can be changed. You can be made a new creation. That's what Jesus does. He changes us. He makes us new. If you're a Christian for many years, 
This is the sort of passage that warns you, that calls you, as Peter does in 2 Peter 1, to make your calling and election sure, to look at the fruit of repentance in your life and make sure it is genuine, to make sure that you're not just a nice person, but that you are a new person. We must not confuse being a Christian with just being a nice person. Anyone can be nice. Being a Christian isn't about being nice. It's about being made new, being united to the Lord Jesus. Have you been changed? We want to be very careful. Is it possible that some of us have all the trappings of Christianity but are without Christ? Is it possible that some of us are like Gehazi? Yes, I'm a servant of the Lord's prophet. But inwardly, we are filled with selfishness and greed and pride. Inwardly, we hate the Lord God. Look at the second part of verse 19. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, and hear that ironically, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he has brought. As the Lord lives. Remember how Elisha said, as the Lord lives, I'm not going to take anything. Now here is Gehazi. He's my master, but as the Lord lives, I will run after Naaman and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. That should sound familiar to you too. Remember just a chapter ago in chapter 4, the Shunammite woman's son is dead and she is going to the prophet Elisha. And what does she say to everyone she meets along the way? All is well. The word there is shalom. Shalom. All is well. Peace. It's all good. And it's my contention, the reason Gehazi thinks he can get away with all of this is because when the Shunammite woman finally gets before Elisha, after telling everybody all is well, Elisha is surprised that she is in bitter distress. And he actually says in verse 27 of chapter 4, the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And so there's almost this sort of all is well from Gehazi because he thinks he can get away with it. He thinks it will be hidden from Elisha. Elisha will never know. Yes, shalom, all is Well, verse 22, my master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. Gehazi plays the perfect con man. And it comes up with a plausible story. He even does that thing when, when Naaman offers him two talents instead of one. No, no, I, I could never, right? No, no, don't, don't. Yes, okay, I'll take it. He takes the wealth, hides it from Elisha, and he thinks he will get away with it all. And you do wonder, where did this start? It's clear the sin has been present for some time in his heart and in his mind. You see in verse 20, we're, we're given insight into Gehazi talking to himself. He's angry that his master has spared Naaman, but notice he's not just Naaman, he's Naaman the Syrian. There is animus in these words. Gehazi's pride in being an Israelite, an insider, a servant of Elisha, 
drives him to hate Naaman, the Syrian, the outsider. It doesn't seem right to Gehazi that this Gentile should receive the blessings of God. And so Gehazi says, I'm going to get something from him. My master has erred in refusing the gifts. And in his greed, he tracks down Naaman. It's a good lesson for us to guard against pride. Our pride will lead us into prejudice. I'm going to shout out Jane Austen. It's true, though, our pride will lead us into prejudice. Because when you think you are better than other people, it's very easy to begin to hate other people. God, we learn throughout the Old Testament, we learn it in the New Testament, is not just a God of Israel. He is a God of all nations. He is the Father of all who share in the faith of Abraham, whether Gehazis like it or not. He is too good and too big to be only God of one people. He is the God of all peoples. Indeed, we see that Naaman's humility in the passage brightens up the darkness of Gehazi's pride and Gehazi's greed. Naaman is like the little girl, full of faith. And Gehazi is like that unbelieving king, full of unbelief. All is not well in Gehazi. He thinks that he can tell a lie about who God is to Naaman. He thinks he can take Naaman for all that he's worth, thinks that he can get away with breaking a lot of commandments here. You should later for homework go through and count up which ones he breaks. Breaks a lot of them. Verse 25. Gehazi went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? The question assumes the answer, no. Verse 27, Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from Elisha's presence a leper like snow. We're given a little bit of a Genesis 3 flashback with that question, where have you been, Gehazi? Makes us think of God asking Adam, where are you in the garden? Adam at least has enough sense to come clean. Gehazi, not so much. He's like, your servant went nowhere. He's here the whole time. Elisha, immediately recognizes, immediately knows, and that's not true. My heart went out with you. You have lied. You have taken in your greed that which didn't belong to you. You have lied about who God is to Naaman in this apparently small act. You see so much of of Adam, right? And we think in the garden, we go, that's such a small thing to take the for, forbidden fruit and eat of it. And then the Lord casts him out of the garden with a curse out of his presence. And the same, same thing is happening here. Gehazi, you know, it's just a small thing to take from Naaman. Lies, he, he takes what's not his. He's cursed with leprosy and that he's cast out of the prophet's presence, out of the presence of God. Such a small thing. Why such big consequences? Because sin is a big deal. And even small things can have infinitely large ramifications. There's a story to help illustrate this that I think I've shared with you before, but maybe not, I don't remember. 
wherein a woman is traveling across Europe without her husband, who is back in the Americas, and she comes across the most beautiful diamond necklace. And she would buy it immediately, right then and there, except for the price tag. Just unbelievably high price. We'll say, you know, it's $4 million. And so she restrains herself and she wires across the Atlantic to her husband, hey, this is the price of this beautiful diamond necklace. What do you think? And her husband wires back, no, price too high. You see, the thing is, the person operating the wire accidentally omitted the comma. So that instead of no, price too high, the message came across the Atlantic. No price too high. Jubilation in Europe. Small twists, small things can have significant consequences. Gehazi's actions here, his greed, seems a small thing, but it tells a big lie about who God is. It undermines what Elisha is trying to communicate about God to Naaman when he refuses his gifts. God, the God of Israel, is the living God. He needs no thing from no man. He is a giver. What you have has been given by grace. Your healing is by his power and by his kindness and for his pleasure alone. And then here comes Gehazi. Actually, we would love to take a little bit of payment here. Lies about who God is and the penalty, the judgment of God, comes on him. The punishment fits the crime. Friends, we should be warned. It is no small thing to bear the name of Christ and to live like the devil. It is no small thing to look alive on the outside and to be dead on the inside, all the while proclaiming Christ. Pride is a deceitful thing. In it, we can deceive ourselves as well as others. Gehazi is not the only person that struggled with pride and the self-deception of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy has claimed many victims. Hypocrisy is looking one way on the outside and being completely different on the inside. My kids' favorite illustration of this, it's one of the few things they remember from sermons, is the time that I was at a baby shower, I think it was, and I was looking for a dessert, and my eyes went across that table, all the wonderful things that had been laid out before me, and they fixated on the most marvelous and most delectable of desserts. Icing, perfect, great, little you know, confetti on top. And then when I plunged the knife into that cake, it revealed itself to be a watermelon shaped to look like a cake. Devilry. I attempted to curse it as Jesus did the fig tree, but to no avail. It was one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside. Hypocrisy. Maybe another example. <laughs> This is off the cuff, so I might get in trouble. Um, one time, I was looking for a tissue in my home. And so I went and I found the requisite tissue box. You know, like Puffs Plus or whatever. And there's you know, that cleanly white sort of, I don't know what you call it, tissue, hanging out of the top of the box. So I take the tissue, blow my nose, and I realize this tissue is a little wet. Chelsea bursts into laughter. For some insane reason, she had filled the tissue box with dirty baby wipes. It presented itself as one thing on the outside. Cleanliness, purity, 
but on the inside, treachery, <laughs> filth. This, this is hypocrisy. This is Gehazi. This is the Pharisees. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. They're watermelon cakes. They're wipe-filled tissue boxes. Or what about Ananias and Sapphira? Greedy, prideful, want to increase their status. They lie about how much they give, and the Lord kills them. Or who could forget Judas Iscariot? He's around Jesus just like Ahazi was around Elisha heard the word proclaimed time and time again, appeared to be a servant of the Lord. But greed was within. He used to help himself to the money bag. Indeed, he betrayed Jesus for some silver, just like Gehazi. Hypocrites. Real people. Real warnings about how it is possible for us to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ with our lips while our hearts are far from him. It's a warning for us. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and any idol. Christians are those who have turned away from dead idols and to the living God. We should be warned. Warned out of our pride. And it is the pride of the Israelites that is offended by this story. Remember in our scripture reading, Jesus is reading from the prophets and he gives them that line about Naaman being healed and about the Gentile widow being visited, but not those in Israel. And the people get angry. They want to kill him. Let's read again. Luke 4, 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. Jesus is warning, he's warning them with the story of Naaman to be like Naaman and not Gehazi. Don't, don't be prejudiced because you guys are the insiders. Evaluate yourselves to make sure you don't end up like Gehazi. Hypocrites, missing out on the blessing of God. He's saying, those that seem most distant from God can receive God's blessing. While those who seem most close to God, those who hear God's word regularly, can miss out on God completely. And in their pride, the people try to push Jesus off a cliff. Friends, the response we should have to a story such as this is to make sure that we never get angry at God's grace to others that we never look at somebody as beyond the saving arm of God. His arm is long and he is mighty to save. He can save anyone. And we should rejoice over it. We should long for it. We should learn from a story like this to humble ourselves before the Lord, to receive his blessing as the poor in spirit, to rejoice that we have known Jesus, not because we are any good in and of ourselves, but because God is good. I think also we learn from a story like this a little bit about how to understand the cross of Christ. You'll notice at the beginning of the story, Naaman has leprosy. And at the end of the story, Gehazi has Naaman's leprosy. An exchange has taken place. Gehazi receives curse. Naaman receives blessing. You see how this teaches us about the cross. Those who hear 
and believe God's word are cleansed of their spiritual leprosy. They're made clean, pure, righteous, and the sins of those who believe, they are put onto Christ as leprosy. The sins are put upon Christ. The nails are sins deserve are, are driven through Jesus. In this story, we go, Gehazi's guilty. He deserves it. But Jesus hangs on the cross, innocent. He's the Lamb of God, our substitute, who dies for our sins. Jesus deserves blessing, and he, he gives his blessing to us, and he takes our spiritual leprosy on himself. He becomes a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus dies on the cross so that that great exchange can take place for all who will repent of their sins and believe in him. Friends, we should walk away from this story heeding the warning. Don't be like Gehazi but be like Naaman. Because Jesus poured out his blood on the cross for the sins of all who would believe, anyone who listens to his word can, like Naaman, wash and be clean. Praise God who saves Naamans like us when we simply come to Christ in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who enables us to hear it rightly. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply your word to our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you poured out your blood for us and that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that through you, we can come to the Father Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving to us the Son and applying his work to us by your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, you are the great three in one. And so we pray in your name, oh, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.